This morning we're looking at the topic of the rise of, of Islam and how we ought to think about that as, as Christians. Okay, it's something that we see in the news constantly. Okay, um, and so how, how are we supposed to think? And then there's a number of different ways that we can go in terms of a, of a sermon here this morning. We can talk about the things that we've been singing about this morning and discussing, you know, God's sovereignty and God's control, and that no matter what's going on, that God is in control. And we can, we can certainly talk about that. We can certainly talk about the differences of belief between Muslims and between Christians. We can talk about issues of the Trinity. We can talk about the death of Jesus Christ, which uh, Surah 157, the Quran denies that Christ did not die, but it appeared to be so. We can talk about that. We can talk about the reliability of the New Testament, these things that are going to come up in our discussion with Muslims. Okay, but this morning's sermon is not going to talk about those things. And if you do have questions on how we can discuss these issues with Muslims around us, I would say the first thing to do is is just speak with Muslims. Ask them what they believe and engage in a conversation with them. Okay? And if you want other resources, please come and speak to me. Uh, we do have one pamphlet at the back that's called The Prophet that talks about a number of teachings, um, common beliefs uh, that Muslims believe and then how, how Scripture shows that these things are not are not true. So that, that ha- handout is also a resource for you. Uh, this past Friday, we remembered uh, September 11th, uh, whenever this whole idea of terrorism really rose to the world stage. And now it just seems like it's a matter of minutes before the next headline appears for the next terrorist attack, the next beheading, the next burning, the next bomb, whatever. We're just waiting for the next one. And that's what our world has been for, for many, many years. If you remember this account on July 16, 2015, Muhammad Youssef Abdulaziz opened fire on two military installations in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He first committed a drive-by shooting at a recruiting center where he fired about 25 to 30 shots from his AR-15 assault rifle. And in there, he wounded a U.S. Marine. Then he traveled up the road to a U.S. Navy Reserve Center and continued firing. He fatally wounded a U.S. Navy sailor uh, who was injured and then later died of his injuries, 26-year-old Randall Smith. He moved through the back of the building and he shot and he killed four U.S. Marines. These four U.S. Marines were trying to protect others as they escaped over the fence behind the complex as this gunman shot them down. Four men, Marine, U.S. Marine Carson Holmquist, Thomas Sullivan, Skip Wells, and David Wyatt died that day. Then Abdulaziz re-entered the building and he engaged in a firefight with police and was killed. So after that 30-minute incident, five U.S. officers were dead and two others were wounded. Okay? Now what followed the attacks started to puzzle many people. The investigators and the White House, the FBI, those who were involved... Uh, said, we don't know what the motive is on this attack. They were not prepared to call this an act of terrorism. And as of, in fact, as of August 15th, the latest update I could find from the FBI in this investigation, they say they're continuing to investigate and they're still not able to determine a motive one month after the attacks. His parents claim that he was suffering from depression and substance abuse. And that's why he did the things that he did. What we do know is that three days before the attack, he wrote a journal entry and said, don't be fooled by your desires. This life is short and bitter and the opportunity to submit to Allah may pass you by. 
And hours before the, te- for the, for the attack, he texted a quote from the Hadith, uh, the Muslims' traditional literature around the Quran. And he, he texted this to a friend and says, Whosoever shows enmity to a friend of mine, then I have declared war against him. This bewilderment went to outrage when after days had gone by and President Obama hadn't said anything or done anything about these terrorists, that hadn't honored these men who had died in the line of duty by this man. And so after much criticism, four days later, he finally addressed the issue and he flew the flags at half-staff at the White House. Outrage continued when the United States Navy said that they were going to bring charges against Lieutenant Commander Timothy White. Because Lieutenant Commander Timothy White was on that reserve base, as well as another man who was shot and killed, and he was going to be charged because he was carrying a sidearm, a personal sidearm. Same with one of the men who was slain, and he actually shot at the attacker with his sidearm. As since starting with the Clinton administration, the Department of Defense prohibits all military personnel from carrying guns while on a base unless they are in a combat zone. So rather than being hailed as a hero, this man was going to be charged for carrying a weapon and defending himself and others from this terrorist attacker. And you can imagine the outrage and the cries of the people where this man is getting charged for doing something that is honorable. And so because of the huge public backlash, the U.S. Navy said, well, a charges or a court-martial is not being laid at this time, but they're continuing their investigation. So not that they're going to not do it ever, but they're going to continue the investigation. And as you think about this, this is not an isolated incident. This is not just one thing that happens. We're just, as I mentioned, we're waiting for the next news headline that tells us about the next shooting or bombing. So what does the Bible say that's going to help us think through these things? How should we think about this as Christian? And the direction that we're going to go here this morning is talk about what is the role of government? What is the role of church? And how how does those roles of those institutions help us as Christians think through this important topic? Okay, so for that, I want you to turn to Romans 13. We're going to start in Romans 13 here this morning. It's also, it's also important to say before we read Romans chapter 13, it's important to remember that when we talk about violent Islam or terrorist attackers or jihadists, we're not talking about every single Muslim. Okay, That's an important distinction to make. Not all Muslims. The majority of Muslims, in fact, are peaceful Muslims. Okay, There are many great Muslims I know that I, I talk with. They have us over for dinner. They are great people in terms of their uh, friendships. Okay, I'm not saying that everyone who is a Muslim is a terrorist or is a terrorist in, in disguise. Okay, There are a few countries, though, that we can think of, like Saudi Arabia, like Iran, like Pakistan, where we see horrible things happening. Now, not all Muslim countries are doing these horrible things as these countries are. Okay, This isn't representative of all Muslim countries, but there is a debate over who is being faithful to the Quran and to the, and to the teachings of Muhammad. Is it the violent extremists or is it the more peaceful Muslims? Who is being more faithful to his teaching? That's the debate that continues to go on. What we do know is that Muhammad and his first generation of followers did advance their cause through warfare and with the sword. 
We also can't ignore that ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, all claim to be faithful to historic Islam. Okay, So what we can say is not, not all Muslims are terrorists, but yet this is a problem among those who claim Islam as their religion. If you remember bin Laden, if you know al-Baghdadi, these are leaders in their groups. These are not just military generals. They're not just conquerors who want more land, but these are scholars of their own religion. These are, these are, are, are prophets. They're spokesmen for their religion. They're preachers. They're imams. They're pastors. Okay, these are spiritual leaders, not just military generals. Okay, so how, how are we going to think through this? Let's look at Romans 13. I want to read the first seven verses of Romans 13. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur, incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So as we look at the first seven verses of Romans 13, we try to look at the context before and after, we realize that what comes before and what comes after is not really related to what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 13. He begins to talk about being in submission to governing authorities. And then after that, he's going on another topic. And before that, he's on another topic. So why is he saying this? And why is he saying it here? I think to answer, answer that question, again, to help us to understand why he would be mentioning that here is this section of scripture starts in Romans 12. And the first two verses of Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it seems like what Paul is addressing here is almost almost like a parenthesis in his fuller argument. He's just talking about how we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that doesn't mean, he's saying here, that we're not in subjection to our governing authorities. It doesn't mean because we're not of this world that, hey, we don't have to pay taxes. I don't have to pay back this mortgage. I can just leave these debts because, hey, I'm just passing through. This is not my home. So he's responding to that kind of thinking. And so Christians... We're reminded here um, that we are to live in submission to the governing authorities. Now, this is not just a one-off in Scripture. Remember Jesus saying, render to Caesars that which is Caesars. Uh, In 1 Peter 2, it says this, uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
Okay, this is a common early teaching at a time when emperors would hang up Christians on crosses and burn them to light their gardens. And they're saying, submit to the emperor. Submit to governing authorities. God is our highest and supreme authority and we obey him in all things. But we also obey those governing authorities as long as they're not telling us to do things that would be contrary to what the Lord Jesus Christ God the Father has commanded us. We are to be subject to our governing authorities. Now, why should we do this? Why should we be subject to governing authorities? Look at Romans 13 in the very first verse. Okay, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then it says four. Okay, here's, here's an explanation of why you should listen to this command. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay? Why do we why are we subject to our governing authorities? Because God has put them in place. God has given them the authority to rule. And so we are to be subject to them. And so that is the ultimate really the ultimate reason these earthly rulers are rulers because they're serving God's purpose. God has placed them there. If you remember when, with Jesus' discussion with Pontius Pilate, and what Pilate said to Jesus, he said this, he goes, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So Jesus recognized that even though Pilate had authority over Jesus in that situation, that his authority was granted to him from God. So God is the ultimate authority and he has put these earthly rulers in their positions for his own purposes. And so we'd be subject to these governing authorities because God has given them authority. And then look at verse number two. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, the same idea. God has instituted these authorities and so do not resist them because God has appointed them to these positions. Okay, that's the first reason. All authority comes from God. That's why we should submit to these governing authorities. All authority comes from God and is under God. The second reason he gives is found in verse 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 in Romans 13. He goes, 4. Okay, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, the second reason why we should submit to governing authorities, okay, they've been placed there by God, but the second reason is those governing authorities are supposed to keep law and order. They're supposed to reward that which is good according to God's ethic and God's standard, and they're supposed to punish that which is evil. They carry out God's wrath against the evil doer. Okay, he's not talking here in this passage about church authorities. He's talking here about government, the state, uh, the rulers of our nation and our provinces and other forms of government. So this passage here drives home the point that as, as Christians, we must live in subjection to these 
governing authorities. And that's relevant for us today, no matter how much we disagree with our provincial government or maybe future federal government, we are to submit to those governing authorities. Not only does this passage give us instruction to submit to these governing authorities, it also helps us understand why these governing authorities are there. What role do they serve? And that's the point I want to look at here this morning. What role do they serve? Towards the good, they reward those who do good. Look at verse 3 again in Romans 13, 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Okay? Those rulers are there to keep law and order. If we do what is good, we should have no problems with the governing authority. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes you might, you're going through the airport or going through security. Maybe you feel really scared or nervous. It's like, oh no. Even though if you're not doing anything wrong, you just feel like they might do something. They might hold you. They might know something that you don't know. Or maybe you're driving and in your rearview mirror, you see lights flashing. The first thing you do is slam on the brakes and your heart's just pounding. I wonder if he's coming for me. Uh, but, but you realize as you go through security in the airport, if you have no issues, you know, if you're going to declare all of your goods, uh, if you know that what's in your bag is not going to be a problem, you can walk through there with confidence and you can actually be thankful that there's men and women there who are serving their nation, serving their government to keep law and order, to keep out the bad and to reward those who are doing good, letting us travel. Now, same with the police officer, okay? He's not just out to get you, but rather he's out there to keep law and order and to keep the streets safe. And so we can be thankful rather than fearful. And that's the point of this passage. Uh, we should be thankful for those who are in ruling authority when they're rewarding that which is good. And we should not be afraid whenever we're doing that which is good. Now, towards those, or about those who are doing evil, that's a different story. Let's look again at verse number three. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Okay, I want to stop and think about that phrase for a second. Rulers are a terror to bad conduct. We hear the the term terrorism or terrorists a lot these days. Okay, terrorism, the idea that through acts of violence or other things, they're going to strike fear into us to control us or to achieve some goal or gain. But this passage is saying that the governing authorities are supposed to strike terror, fear. Phobos is the Greek word. uh, Terror into those who are committing evil acts, not the other way around. Evil is not supposed to terrify us, but it's supposed to be the governing authorities are supposed to strike fear into those who are doing evil acts. And why? Why do they strike fear into those who are doing evil acts? We'll look at verse number four. For he is God's servant for your good. It says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is why those who are doing wicked or evil acts should be afraid of the governing authorities because they've been installed by God to strike fear by by not carrying the sword in vain. Tragically, as in the case of Chattanooga, where so many of them were unarmed on a military base, even in front of our own parliament, our men who are sworn to protect life died powerless to respond. Remember the Corporal Nathan Cirillo, who was shot at point-blank range in the back. Now, there were two other guards there that day. All three of them were carrying weapons, but none of them had any ammunition for their weapons. And so they were powerless 
to stop this attacker as he ran into the parliament buildings with his gun. Sadly, their bearing of the sword in this case was in vain. There was nothing that they could do. Same in the Chattanooga shootings. These were trained military personnel, unable to do anything, um, bearing the sword in vain. But the way the scriptures are saying, this is not how our governing authorities, they should be bearing the sword, not in vain, but in order to punish those, to carry out, to be an avenger of God's wrath on those who commit evil, on the wrongdoer, it says in verse number four. Now we know from scripture that God is going to judge in the end, that there is a future judgment. But this verse, and also in Romans 1.18, when it says God's wrath is being revealed, this verse is talking about how God's wrath is also, God's judgment is also taking place temporally in this time and in this place and in the here and now. Because what it says in verse 5, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's not talking about a future day of judgment, but rather this is a here and now, God's wrath, God's justice is to be carried out by those in governing authorities on those who are doing wrong, those who are carrying out wicked acts. So what we can learn from this text is that God's ordained means of punishing the wicked, of stopping the wicked from carrying out these wicked acts, is the governing authorities. He's not talking here about the church. The church is not called to pick up arms and to arm themselves and to go on crusades and to fight physically. But the governing authorities are described here doing that very thing, to not use the sword in vain, but rather to punish those, to carry out God's wrath, to avenge those who are acting wickedly or doing evil things. Now, what's important to remember here is that the reformers talked about an idea of two kingdoms. And what they, what they meant by that is the idea that God is ruling and reigning in this earth in two different spheres or kingdoms. One is in the rule of government, as we see right here. that God has put these authorities in his place to carry out justice on this earth. And he's also ruling through the church. And the church is not supposed to pick up arms, but the church, rather, we engage in spiritual warfare where through the proclamation of the gospel, through prayer, through sacrificial love, through missions, that's how, how we wage war. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions and take everything captive to obey Christ. That's what the church is called to do. Now, the government is called to keep law and order and to rule faithfully and to punish the wrongdoer and to reward those who are doing good. Now, sometimes those two spheres overlap like in Old Testament Israel, which is why we have in Old Testament Israel a state that is both uh, running like a state, like a governing authority, and like a religious institution. Those spheres overlapped. But right now they are separate with our state not being the church and the church being separate. And then, and then again in the future, those two spheres are going to come back together again when Christ is going to rule and reign physically here on this earth. Now that one passage that I've alluded to talking about the role of the church is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and we're going to turn there in just a moment. But before we do that, we have to just ask ourselves, you know, what is what is the role of the church? If that's the role of government, what is the role of the church? Are, are we playing any part of opposing ideas or people like ISIS or these kinds of groups? who wage a religious war. Okay, we see that the government is supposed to execute God's wrath in the physical realm. 
Now, this is where the church comes in to battle in the spiritual realm. There's a spiritual warfare going on. And this is a spiritual warfare that the Western secular mind just cannot fathom. Okay? So often, as we see in our, in our media, in our governments today, the Western secular mind just cannot fathom, cannot understand the ideas and the spiritual nature of the conflict that is behind these acts of terror and these militant Muslims that are, that are taking up arms to do battle against the infidel. The one refrain that we hear over and over and over in the media, whether it's from the President of the United States or whether it's from the CBC or not, everywhere, we hear it over and over again. This has nothing to do with Islam. Every, after every single attack, there's always a news article, there's always a reporter. This has nothing to do with Islam. This has nothing to do with being a Muslim. This has nothing... Islam is a peaceful religion. Muslims are peaceful people. This has nothing to do with Islam. And so that is said over and over and over again. And no wonder the FBI can't find a motive for the Chattanooga shootings when this has nothing to do with Islam. And so they can't find the motive because they know right off the bat, this has nothing to do with Islam. And that's the refrain we hear over and over again. And I believe it's just because the Western secular mind just cannot comprehend the spiritual battle going on in this fight between good and evil. Now, we should recognize that the vast majority of Muslims are peaceful, as I said, but by saying that these acts of terror have nothing to do with Islam is a wide-reaching statement, especially when you consider uh, Muhammad and his early followers, and when you consider that all of these individuals that are carrying out these terrorist attacks say they're doing it for Allah. They're doing it in the name of Islam. They're doing it as a faithful Muslim. They are claiming themselves, it's not me putting words in their mouth, but they are saying that they're doing these very things because of their faith, because of their religion. And so the secular West, instead of seeing this as anything to do with a spiritual warfare or a religious war, they largely view violence as stemming because of um, a response to oppression. Okay, so in one sense, the conflict in the Middle East is seen as almost justified or explainable by the sense that these people are being persecuted by others. For instance, when you think about the conflict going on between Israel and its neighbors, um, many in the secular West would say, well, Israel needs to give up their land to the Palestinians or to the Muslims around them. And so they say, well, if Israel would just give up their land, then this conflict would be over because this conflict is about land. And so they think because Israel is taking some of their land, if we give back their land, then this conflict would cease. Or if we gave them better education or jobs or opportunities, um, if, we, if the, we helped their culture to improve and we helped money to come into their countries, again, we, we'd see the stop of violence and these things would all disappear. The Western secular mind often sees American involvement or, or military involvement as the very reason why we have groups like ISIS. You know, is, is there any truth to this? If we ask, you know, did, did America really create this problem of ISIS? And, and many in the West would answer with a resounding yes. America has stuck their nose in somebody else's business and they've created all these problems. And so it's really because we in the West have been oppressing these people. They've just done the only thing they can do, which is respond back in these acts of violence. 
Now, as we think about this, and, and this is popular, we hear this all the time, there are many ideas or many truths that would go against some of these ideas. Many facts. For, in, for instance, you don't hear much about the persecution of minority groups in the Middle East, like Christians and other religions who are not involved in a land dispute, who don't have a military, who aren't trying to oppress anyone, who just want to have their small little plot of land, who aren't doing anything to oppress or to attack anyone. They just want to live for themselves. They are killed and they are slaughtered by the hundreds and the thousands because they are infidels, because they are unbelievers. This has nothing to do with prosperity or land, but rather it's an, a spiritual battle, an ideological battle. That is the primary issue. And so as we see, the role of government is to carry out God's wrath, to avenge God's justice on the evildoer. We see the role of the church come into prominence when it comes to fighting this ideological, the spiritual battle that is raging and taking place. And so it's Second Corinthians chapter 10 that I want to look to here as we consider the role of the church. And I want to start reading verse number three in Second Corinthians chapter 10. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, so as we, as we consider just what's, written so far in terms of that, that passage, that idea. What should the church's response to be with the rise of violent Islam, the rise of these terrorist attacks? How should we respond? We, we wage war according to this text, but we wage war with the gospel. We wage war with, with argumentation, with the truth of God's word, with sacrificial love, with prayer, for taking every thought or opinion captive, taking that which is against Christ, we destroy those arguments with divine power, not with physical might, but with the power of the scriptures and the power of the Holy Ghost, with the power of the proclaimed gospel. Because we realize in Romans 1.18, that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So that's the power we go with as the church and as Christians, as we st- seek to stand up against those who would wage war on who God is and on fellow man. We realize that we must, when it talks about here, destroying arguments, realize we must talk about the nature of God, who God is, who man is, who, who Christ is, what he came to do and call people to repent and believe in Christ's finished work. This is part of what it means to be waging war in our society here today as Christians. We are to enter battle by putting on armor, it says in Ephesians 6. Not physical armor, but spiritual armor. So ready to fight this spiritual war, to take up the Great Commission and to go and to make disciples. To make followers of Jesus Christ, not by the sword, not by threats of beheading, but rather through the proclamation of the gospel. To tell people that God the Creator is a holy God. 
and he has made this world and he has made us and we are we have dignity and value and worth because God has made us. And yet we you look in this world today and you see the corruption. You see the wickedness of our own hearts. If you just think about what was on your mind this past week, you realize just how how wicked and sinful we are. And as as we discuss these things, we talk about the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ. How God from eternity past planned to send his son before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, the lamb was slain. Christ was slain and he ransomed the people for God, it says in, in, in Revelation 4, 9. From out of every tribe, tongue, people and nation, Christ has ransomed. His death is effectual in redeeming the people. And he calls everyone because he's elevated now at the right hand of the Father after his death and his resurrection. And now he commands everyone to repent and to believe the gospel. That's our rallying cry. That's our war cry. That's what we go out into this world and we engage conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that the governing authorities are supposed to take care of those physical things, are supposed to take care of punishing the wrongdoer and rewarding those who do right. We Christians, we go forward and we engage in this ideological, this spiritual battle with the proclamation of the gospel, with the truth of God's word. And we have the promise of Christ that he will be with us always, mediated through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he goes with us in power because we don't have the power to convert anyone. But we go there with the very words of God. When the Bible talks about a sword comes from the mouth of Christ, it's not talking about a a physical sword, but the sword of the word. When Christ speaks, things happen. And so we don't go wield a physical sword. We wield the word of God and we tell people the truth. And the Holy Spirit of God enters in and fights that battle for us. That's what we're called to do as a church. Now we hear this term radicalized these days. You know, a radical... Muslim is someone who has taken up the cause of jihad, who is going to wage war against the infidel, against the polytheists, against the unbelievers. He's going to go out there and he's going to pick up arms. He's going to detonate bomb on himself. He's going to do something to, to terrorize, to kill and to destroy. That's what it means to be a radicalized Muslim these days. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a radical Christian? What does it mean when a Christian is radicalized? We're not going out there to try to kill people. We're going out there to give our lives to save people. We're going out there and we're sacrificing ourselves and we have the truth of Jesus Christ. We're willing to lay our lives down on the ground. That's what a radical Christian means. It means we take the call to Jesus seriously. In fact, we realize it's it's a normal Christian because Jesus says, whoever is going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So for someone who's, who's a radical Christian is going to be living as a disciple of Jesus Christ who's going to count their life cheap and is going to be willing to lay down their life for the sake of others. That's what a radicalized Christian is. And I wish that we all were radicalized so we can go out there and fight this battle and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he asked, what is the church's response to the rise of Islam and violent extremism? The church's response is missions. To go and to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. You know, when that terrorist attack hit September 11th, 2001, what was the Christian response? Missions. Ever since that terrorist attack, the, the amount of involvement and interest in the Muslim, in Muslim countries, not 1040 window has just shot up significantly. We have more people because 
of what is going on, willing to go there and to give their lives. We have so many Christians who have given their lives going over to these Arab nations to bear witness about Jesus Christ. We have so many that are in jail even at this moment because they took up their cross and they followed Jesus Christ and they lived as a radical Christian, not going to kill someone, but giving themselves up for somebody else. So you must realize that we're not bringers of death, we're bringers of life. We bring the gospel message of Jesus Christ, this good news of forgiveness, the promise of eternal life. Not by physical might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the proclaimed word. Not even was it 9-11 that created a big um, amount of Christians going overseas to these Muslim majority countries. If you remember Jim Elliott, whenever he gave his life and his fellow, fellow missionaries paid the ultimate price of their lives, a huge increase in missions work followed after them. Whenever Christians die for the faith, or whenever people are killed, the Christian response is to go and to give your life for the sake of others, to make Jesus Christ known. And so when Christians are attacked and killed, our response needs to be one of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward in power. Okay, so we see here is that the Christian response is not to turn and to be violent in return, but rather to allow the government to handle those matters and those issues. And we are to go to wage war with the gospel. That's a a short story. I had a friend of mine just head over to India recently. And he being, he's a bit taller than me, so just over six feet tall, very fair skinned. Being in India, he really stood out. And a lot of people were staring at him, and but he had a, had a good time there. And what, one of the interesting things, um, as he goes there, many many of the pastors or, or leaders of the church in India have have a bag near the back door. Uh, when people come running to attack them, they grab that bag and they're out of there. There's always the threat of persecution, always the threat. Uh, you know, they, they all know someone who has given their lives for the faith. Okay, and so that's that's what's going on in, in parts of that country. And so he went there and he was asking about the persecution. And in that part of the country, it's not the Muslims that were persecuting the Christians because it's majority Hindu. Okay? And both Christian and Muslim populations are, are a small minority. And so it was the Hindus that were beating and robbing Christians uh, because of what they believed. And so my friend asked, well, are they also persecuting the Muslims? And he says, oh, no. no they, won't, they won't persecute the Muslims because they'll fight back. And they know that the Christians won't fight back. Because our, our battle is not to wage war with the sword. But our battle is to wage war with the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. And it's going to be through the sacrifice of martyrs. And that's where it's not a call to, to give your life as a martyr. But it, if that is the call, and that's going to happen. And when martyrs do die in their blood, the gospel of Jesus Christ sounds forth in powerful, powerful ways. We're here today because of the blood of martyrs. We have the word today because of the blood of martyrs. Because of people who stood up, not with their swords, not with their guns, but with argumentation from the Spirit of God, with the truth of God's word, with the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. So what a dramatic difference it would make in our world if we as Christians rose up and spread the gospel and demonstrated the love of Christ in these areas affected by terrorism and violence and hatred. 
The kingdom of God is going to advance through the proclamation of the gospel, even in times of persecution and martyrdom. So we must realize it is not a time to cower in fear. Our God is a God who is in control and he has given us weapons by which we can fight this war. And it is the weapons of God's word. Let's pray.